Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Advent. It comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 9. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! All right, so we're starting a new season, the season of Advent. Uh, let's talk a little bit about like seasonal context before we get into textual context. I was looking at Paul Lindemann's The Sermon in the Propers, Volume 1, and on page 29, he has this nice little paragraph about just what Advent is about. And I think it kind of summarizes uh, really what I've been taught um, quite nicely. He wrote, the dominant idea of Advent is the thought of the Lord's coming. The propers of the liturgy recognize a threefold coming, the coming in the flesh, the coming in glory, and the coming in grace. In Advent, the liturgy prepares for a worthy and proper commemoration of our Lord's first Advent, the historical event that lies in the past. However, the church is not content to remind her children of only a past event that can be called to remembrance, but cannot be experienced. In the first coming, she sees a picture of the invisible coming in grace, which can be and is experienced in the present, and of the visible coming in glory, which will be experienced in the future. So how does Matthew 21, on the gospel reading on this first Sunday of Advent, help bring into view this thought of Advent, which is a focus on the Lord's coming? Well, this is the culmination of his first coming, right? His coming mm. in the flesh, and that's about to be finished, um, I guess, in 47 days, right? Mm -hmm. So, that. by the way, I think it's Herb Lindemann. Didn't Herb Lindemann write that book? Do I have uh, that wrong in my mind? Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not Paul or, or Herb, it's Fred. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's it, Fred. That's what it was. That's right. I know. I, yeah, that's right. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but, but good correction. I just saw Lindemann on the spine. I'm like, oh, that's Paul Lindemann. Uh, it's Fred Lindemann. <laughs> Fred Lindemann. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay, <laughs> sorry. That was just going to bug me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you. So the. Uh, this is the culmination of the coming in the flesh. The first coming. You also have the language of coming. Right. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. So. Mm-hmm. I think those are the connections to recognize. But so if we're preparing seasonally, we're preparing for Christmas, right? We're trying to get ready to observe Christmas in a way that will be pious and edifying to us. And mm. that means that we want to we want to be highly aware and conscious of why God became a man. And ultimately, of course, he becomes a man to make himself a sacrifice and to be lifted up on the cross. And the like. So th- I think that's the connection. And I think it is an important connection because, I mean, if, if you've been in the church a long time, you're, you're used to this now, right? I mean, our people completely anticipate the reading of this account on Advent 1. But if you're new to the liturgical tradition, it seems, it seems weird because it seems like Advent should be, we should be doing things like the Annunciation and the Visitation, and right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we would that's what we would you would think of to get ready for Christmas read read Luke 1 not Matthew right. 21 so uh, with that then that kind of leads us into then the the textual context uh, it seems as though we've got in Matthew 20 verses 17 to 19 our lord's third passion prediction in Matthew and then immediately following upon that you get two requests. The first request is from the Zebedee's mother uh, or the brother Zebedee's mother uh, that her boys would sit on the right and the left. And then the two blind men and then our text. And then immediately following it, the cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus's authority is challenged by kind of those in power. Uh, So this is beginning really the intense passion and leading up to, as you said, the culmination, any other contextual things that, that, that help us um, understand what's going on in this particular text? Well, I think that that the blind man in Jericho, you know, is, is really that, that is significant because the disciples are, are, you know, they're blind spiritually somewhat, or at least impaired. And this blind man, you know, makes this great statement and and uses the title Son of David, which is going to come up from the Psalm 118 thing as well. So, yeah. And also the yeah. progression, um, as you said, right, from Jericho to Jerusalem, and of course from Jerusalem really to the cross. So, yeah, I think that's great. Right, so any um, translation issues? I mean, not really issues. Yeah i i thought I thought the the ESV was a little too. I don't know. It was it wasn't as it wasn't quite as uh, literal as the New King James in a couple of places. Not that it was misleading, but that was annoying to me. That <laughs> I do like the. Uh, in terms of th- there is a little bit of this this drawing near language you know 
is eschatological, um, along with the word immediately. You know, there there is this kind of coloring of the account. You did also have, I guess it's not in Matthew, but uh, he draws near to Jer- Jericho, and then the blind man. So. Um, and of course, it's the gospel that draws near, right? Or the kingdom of heaven that draws near in the preaching of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And then it's the day of redemption that draws near in uh, Luke 24, I think. Um, so yeah. there is that. And Jesus draws near to, to Emmaus also. Maybe that's Luke 24. But anyway, um, the, this that he's drawing near to Jerusalem is literal, right? He's close to the city physically, but it's also this, this reminder that he's drawing near to the cross and, and the end of all things, the culmination of history is, is practically upon us. So that's a nice, I mean, it's, it's somewhat subtle, but it's an important note to set the stage on this. Also then, and then that's the, also the kind of urgency when he tells him, go into the village and immediately, you know, you will find this donkey tied. And then if anyone says to you, this kind of brevity of the response to the Lord has need of them, right? Like there's no time to explain things or Mm -hmm. make introductions and immediately he will send them. Have you ever made anything? uh, It it doesn't really come across in the ESV, but the, you know, it says, you know, you'll find an ass tied or a colt tied and then untie them. But I mean, these are like, you will find them bound and loose them. So is there any right. sense in which that should be, we should we should play that up uh, in terms of, look, technically, yes, it's tied and they're untying him. <laughs> but there's more to this kind of framework of, of word usage than just the, the, they just went and untied him. There's, there's a, right. this is a picture of what, actually Jesus is about to do as he's entering Jerusalem. He's going to loose those who are bound. Right. In fact, that word can be used for forgive. Um, the word, right. and yeah. You also well, have apolio, is typically. Right. You, yeah. you also have this, the word that's translated, you translated bring. I would translate that as lead. Which I mean, it's very subtle, of course, but but you know this that that he sends the apostles to do this. So mm-hmm. I think really this is this is actually allegorically the apostles right preaching the gospel to the Gentiles to donkeys, mm-hmm. and they forgive their sins and lead them to Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I'm I'm not being dogmatic about that, but Gerhardt does take those donkeys as the believer, um, it, not here. But later, he um, well, not not in the untying, but when Jesus is placed upon them. So you have this sort of Christopher, right, bearing Christ kind of thing. But mm-hmm. also the fact that he sits on the colt, and then the donkey has to be dragged along, as, as Gerhardt puts it. He sees this as the old and the new man. So the new man is believe, trusting in Christ, believing in Jesus, and being you know carrying him towards this. And the old man's being dragged along like a stupid donkey, so mm-hmm. I think that I think that that's right. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that that's a, a going too far at all to see this as very deliberate language, right? The apostles are sent. <laughs> I mean, it says right, Jesus sent two disciples. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. apostle language. So you've got a lot yeah. of language in there that seems to be 
implying other things and is coloring this in a way that I think it's appropriate to, to see this as, you know, figurative or symbolic or, you know, showing us a consistency in the way mm-hmm. that God interacts with creation and with us. Yeah. So um, Lindemann makes a big deal uh, Fred, not Herb or Paul, uh, makes a big deal of <laughs> Advent is preparing. And we we get in this text, uh, he points out how the disciples are sent to make preparations by getting uh, this colt and, and, and donkey. Uh, and then as he's entering, the people are, who are receiving him, they are making preparations for him. And then even those who are against or his uh, Jesus's opponents, uh, like in the Gospel of Luke, they're making preparations, but to 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 kill him and to, um, you know, be done with him altogether. How does preparation fit in here? And um, and do we see that? Has that been something that you have focused on in preaching in the past about? preparing. I have preached on preparing in the past. I was thinking about this today in terms of almost the same thing as Lindemann, but I was thinking in terms of ceremonies. That is that Christ's coming in grace requires a response and requires ceremonies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That So we can't just act like, we can't just sit there like bumps on a log if God comes to us in the sacrament, right? We're going to have to respond to that in some way that's appropriate, Mm -hmm. and that's going to have some external reality that's going to be ceremonies. So in their cases, they're, right, they're placing their garments on the donkeys and then cutting down branches and putting them on a road and also their garments on the road. And I think also maybe they're kind of an, um, uh, sacrifices are made, which maybe fits with the preparation idea that these ceremonies or these actions have some cost, right? Their clothes are ruined so that the donkey doesn't have to step in the mud, uh, and that's seemed to me like uh, a correspondence to the costly oil, because I, you mm. can just imagine Judas saying, well, that's a waste of a garment, right? And of course, <laughs> you know, people saying, why do we have such, you know, why does the church have a golden chalice when there's people that are hungry in the city or that sort of thing? So uh, also, uh, you know, they, their response, of course, is praise and asking for salvation. So I was thinking of it in terms of I guess, but I, I suppose the uh, answer would be to tie the two things together. Uh, I often say reverence requires preparation. So, mm. I mean, if you're going to engage in these ceremonies, they're not simply spontaneous, um, but we have to actually prepare for them. We have to think about them in adva- advance if we're going to do them in a way. I, I think it's irreverent to not be prepared. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Because right, you're not, if you didn't prepare for it, it's like, it's not an event that matters at all. If you're coming to my house for dinner and I don't clean the house, what does that say that I think about your visit? Or if you're coming to my house for dinner and I also don't make dinner, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> right. It's, it's disrespectful, right? It's irreverent. So reverence requires preparation. These ceremonies do seem to be pretty spontaneous in this, in this context. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not, but, but ours are, are different because we know Jesus is coming to us in the sacrament this coming Sunday, and we ought to prepare for it. 
And maybe, you know, preparing for it is laundering our clothes, you know, that we're going to wear, our nice clothes, because we want to dress up because Jesus is going to be there. And maybe our preparation is not eating on Sunday morning because we want to be hungry physically, when we re- mm-hmm. uh, even as we are hungry for righteousness. And maybe our preparation is, you know, reading the text the night, whatever. I mean, but we do know it's coming. It's not just spontaneous and maybe we should also be willing to make some sacrifices in this and to, to think about what, what ceremonies we will engage in at the actual event. Mm, right. I think that's sort of related. No, that's really good. Um, the, the appointed epistle lesson is all about recognizing what time it is. Um, that, mm. that, the day of salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, or oh, no one, nothing, uh, and uh, so be loosed, right? To to be unbound by these things. Uh, if if you're in debt, um, then you're you're bound by something. Um, so, yeah. so is this also then a call to uh, not only recognize what that Jesus in his coming and grace in word and sacrament is not only present and there's a certain preparation there, but also that um, the time of salvation is now and, yeah. and reconciliation uh, with one another is something that we should prepare for before we greet him. Oh, that's really good. I, yeah, that's, that's absolutely biblical. That's right. I, I don't talk that way enough. Um, maybe cause maybe it's my flesh. I don't want to reconcile with people, but that's, that's right. Uh, no, that's, that's very good. I think the I've often, I think that one of the interesting things in Advent is that we're so, I don't think we're ever so out of sync with the culture as we are during Advent because the world is getting ready for what it calls Christmas, which is a completely materialistic event. Right. And, mm-hmm. We're not getting ready for Christmas. It's not like Jesus is about to be born, right? We are getting ready for the last day. And right. Advent is about shedding materialistic things. So it's sort of out of sync because while we're doing this in church, you know, fasting and penance and, you know, this kind of thinking, you know, we're also buying Christmas gifts and decorating the house and baking and buying lots of food to have this big meal. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of possibilities there about kind of showing the contrast and reminding us that we're not preparing for Jesus to be born, right? And right, you know, we, we're 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 what we're we're, we're going to observe his birth and commemorate it. But even that commemoration and remembrance is a is a preparation for the end, right? We're not. Pre- I, I thought what you were going to say, which you sort of did, but right that we're. You know, we're preparing in some ways to receive the sacrament on Sunday. That's valid, but we're receiving the sacrament on Sunday to prepare us for Judgment Day, right? Right. The means well, that's of what, preparation are the means of yeah. And this is like your refrain in previous episodes, where you say, "You know, we don't typically rise to the occasion. We usually fall to our lowest level of training, and this is the training, right?" So Sunday after Sunday is a recognition that Jesus is coming. And in particular, we focus on that in Advent. 
so what are the things that we need to be trained to do so that when he does come in glory visibly that we that preparations have been made right and so that's where things outside of the divine service i mean obviously the to practice righteousness is to receive the means of righteousness and to live in them uh but at the same time you know this idea of of denial you know whether that's fasting from food or other sorts of forms of extra whatever extra activities extra bible reading extra whatever it might be are we're going to um the men of our congregation are mostly participating in abstinence from alcohol this advent and i think it's going to be i think it's good, i think it's going to be good uh, i mean it's a voluntary of course and it's not a way to earn righteousness but it's uh it's part of a a recognition that we have a tendency to glorify alcohol too much you know we make a lot of we joke about alcohol in ways that are inappropriate we joke about drunkenness and the like and so this is a a bit of a this fast is sort of an act of penance <laughs> and uh not that anything's gone horribly wrong here with alcohol but just recognizing that i don't think we've been treating alcohol with the reverence that it deserves um mm-hmm. and we're, we're ta- you know the idea came up it wasn't my idea um, but I thought it was a great idea was to, you know, we ought to do this during Advent. Let's just stop. Let's just all stop drinking. That's a very typical, you know, kind of way to fast during Advent. And uh, I think it's that that kind of idea is related to this. Sometimes you have people that misunderstand fasting because they want it to be so spiritual. They think it can't have any physical benefits. You know, if I'm if I'm fasting because I want to train my flesh so that I'm not ruled by my passions, so that my faith isn't destroyed, great. But if I also have the ulterior motive of losing weight, then somehow I've corrupted it, which I think is utterly ridiculous. Look, things that are good are good in more than one realm. And uh, there, there's there's no shame in it actually being also healthy and beneficial in other ways. So anyway, this uh, this idea of being aware of the time and that the end is coming and that, again, reverence requires preparation and we would actually take it seriously. And mm-hmm. not that we're going to make ourselves worthy by our efforts, but we're not going to flaunt, right? We don't, we don't practice wickedness. We practice righteousness. Well, and so often, instead of like mortifying our flesh or and asking God to kill these things in us that would lead us to uh, not be sober-minded uh, and not view things yeah. as God has revealed them to us as we should see them. Um, we, we we use the time that God gives us to avoid or distract ourselves by means of, well, um, I guess in Advent 2, dissipation and drunkenness, we get weighed down with these things. And, yeah. and instead of uh, seeing this as the mark of Christ's coming and redemption for us, we view it as something to be avoided and something to be something that we need to escape from. Uh, and so this sounds like a really great idea to to remain sober minded during this time, to focus on no matter how bad things might appear, 
this is really when we should be excited to see what God's going to do. Yeah. And I, it's also, I think it's going to be very pointed because this is the season of Christmas parties. Yeah. And like you say, I mean, this is a, this is a drinking season and there it's like, it's like the children of Israel not eating lobster, you know, where uh. you're going to be acting different than your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, you're set apart in, or, you know, taking a Nazarite vow or something. So I, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I like the idea. I'm looking forward to it. Um, in and a way, Daniel and his know? friends. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think the other side of the thing, which we we haven't really started talking about yet, but which I intend to, and that is that you know when we when we crack open the bottles on Christmas Eve after the service, you know this isn't a time to overindulge now, right? right. That that the the part of the fast it isn't just uh, a, a sake of suffering to make our you know to increase our mental strength it's it's also to reevaluate and to consider our relationship to alcohol and how we use it appropriately and and don't misuse it mm-hmm. so and i think that's that might that's that will be hard uh you know i think it'll be harder at least for me it i don't think it'll be that hard to not drink at the office christmas party but um it'll be harder to not you know overindulge on christmas afternoon Right. But it'd okay, be nice so, to not overindulge with anything. <laughs> not just that, but food, the whole. <laughs> well, as you have mentioned just previously, you know, you tend to see that a discipline in this one area kind of overflows into others as well. Yeah. So you might see that. So that's all. Okay. Yeah. You become disciplined in, uh, and, consumption of alcohol, that that overflows into discipline in eating and uh, other yeah. other kinds of imbibings. Right. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. You want to get back to the text? Yeah. Let's get, let's, <laughs> let's, so kind of right in the middle is the, the, the king actually coming, you know, this whole thing from the prophet, uh, the, the promise that he's coming to you, is, is that a um, is that the consolation in this that he's not just the one who came but is constantly coming? Yeah, I mean that that's the really that's the key verse to the to the whole reading and to this particular Sunday that the that the King is coming present tense, and this really gives you the opportunity to talk about the three kingdoms, um, you know, the kingdom of uh, power, glory, and grace. Did mm-hmm. Lindemann bring those up? I think he did. And well, he but you can also, about of course, grace, that. glory, and flesh. The coming in the flesh. Okay. But is, yeah, it's all that. Oh, oh yeah. He's that's the th- that's different than the kingdoms. There are the right. there are the three comings, but you can tie those also to the three kingdoms, which you can tie to the Lord's Prayer, Luther's explanation, uh, which is right. The, the King is coming now. That's that's the kingdom of grace. And there's a lot of confusion, you know, the disciples at the ascension, they ask, they don't know what's going, right? Is, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? I mean, it's crazy they say that. But I think that we have a tendency to hear in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, without catechesis. I think we have a tendency to hear that as a prayer for the kingdom of glory, which, which it is, uh, but it's not mainly that. 
So I think this is a great opportunity. And this whole passage is consoling, right? Right off with, tell the daughter of Zion, right? You know, the children of the temple, the children of my presence, those who are my children and have access to me. I mean, that's that's a very affectionate and gospel phrase. And then, of course, your king, and then is coming to you. You've got all of that, you know, very gospel language. The behold is also, you know, look here or attention getting, but I think also is um, a kind of uh, 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 appeal to the to the foreshadowing of the beatific vision, right? Notice this, pay attention. Look, you can actually see Christ coming in word and in sacrament if you look with the eyes of faith, like the blind men, not like the apostles. And then, of course, mm-hmm. this, uh, What? how did, is it translated lowly? In your in ESV also lowly and sitting on a donkey, humble and mounted on a donkey. Oh, okay, I like that better. Humble's better, I think, for this. Um, Gerhardt makes a big deal that in Hebrew that word actually means uh, poor, so rather than being rich. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, the 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 Greek word here is humble's a good a good translation. Yeah, often it's translated um, I mean, as gentleness. But gentle, I know, and that's really I not, just don't that's like not that. it. <laughs> um, no, I don't either. I because I don't think it's it's literal enough. Though I mean, it's it's a fair, it's it's a true reality that he is coming in a gentle way, and I think, but the gentleness is be, is that he's sitting on a donkey, um, because a donkey is not a you know he's coming as a king, but not a conquering king. He's not mm-hmm. coming with an army. He's not riding on a you know, a, a war horse or with a show of power or might. Mm-hmm. So there's humility, but, and there is gentleness in this, but I think, yeah, the yeah. humility or lowliness is the, is the right thing. Luther's sermon so that, on this, I, this is the key in, the, in the Apostles is really good when he makes a big deal out of oh. he's on a donkey and and you know this is a beast of burden because he came to bear our burdens he's not on a war horse he's not here to to make war with us so yeah well and you get that with you know when the people cry out son of david right that the son of david is solomon whose name means peace who also enacted this you know same scene in first mm. kings Right. He comes into the city on a donkey as well, so you've got you've you've got that connection to Solomon and peace, and that he's coming, he's coming to us to he's not only coming in peace, but he's coming to end war, right? To establish peace. There's also though in that son of David, um, you know, the other the son of David by Bathsheba, the first one who died right. mm-hmm. in the place of David, so. There's a, a real richness there too, but oh no, that's good. Um, any other doctrine and refutation? Oh, let's see. Advent's coming to you. Oh, I, it is something to say about um, back to your seasonal thing. I think you know the difference between this text on Advent one as opposed to in the narthex on Palm Sunday. On, on Palm Sunday, the connection to the Passion is much more deliberate, right? In fact, it's Passion Sunday, and we'll hear the reading of the Passion. Um, here, I think, really, the, the, this is this emphasis upon – this is a very kingly kind of thing. I think, actually, ride on, ride on in majesty 
textually. It's not the greatest of hymns, but I do enjoy it. Um, fits better in a way on Advent one than it does on Palm Sunday. But I think there's the, the whole point of that is there's something there that's very preachable to acknowledge not only that we're looking at this, the birth of Jesus on Christmas eschatologically and towards the fulfillment, but also to sort of recognize the, the mood. Um, you could do something with the drawing near. That's not doctrinal or reproof, but you know, to, to look at the way that that word is used. Uh, we touched on that a little bit, but there again, there's something that's also a consoling word, right? That he draws near to us, that the kingdom of God is at hand, you know, all of those sorts of things. He um, proves you himself could do something to be a neighbor. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, you could do something for sure on, oh, I was going to say you can connect that humility and the gentle character of, you know, not coming on a war horse. You can connect that to very nicely, both to the birth of Jesus, right? How humble that birth is. Um, and then, of course, also to the crucifixion. Uh, he also draws near to the city of Jerusalem in Luke to weep over it. So there's a, a lot of things to be to be noted there. Doctrinally, you could go after Hosanna, um, you know, just explaining the word itself, connecting it liturgically, and then, you know, taking it in context in Psalm 118, which is actually quite surprising uh, because you have that beautiful bit there where um, – it says, you know, tie the sacrifice to the altar, and then this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So Psalm 118 is really rich. Uh, why they choose that to start singing this is a little unclear. It's, it's one of the, apparently it's one of these hallel psalms that was used on pilgrimages. These people are pilgrims. They're, they're not there for a, a royal procession into the city. They're going for the Passover. And Correct. there's a kind of party spirit involved. And it's, in fact, that's another really interesting thing. Do they know what they're saying and do they mean it? I read, I wish I could remember where this was. I read somebody, I don't think it was Gibbs, but somebody who said, maybe they're mocking Jesus, that they're actually being sarcastic so they see him riding on this donkey and they see what the disciples are doing. And this psalm is already on their lips because they're singing this as they on pilgrimage. And uh, it's sort of like, who does he think he is? And I don't know. I've, I, I don't like that, but it's an like interesting it idea. Um, it's an interesting idea, though, that, that they're just, you know, that they're, they're not really pious and they're going to Jerusalem for a party like people go into an office party and it doesn't have anything to do about the birth of Jesus, right? This is Santa Claus and gifts and eggnog and, right? I mean, you know, the Passover is just the occasion that they don't really care about historically. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, look at this clown. Well, who's he think he is? I, I don't know. But it's possible, I think, that at least some of them uh, could have been, if not mocking Jesus, just kind of cultural Christians going along with it. These are fun songs to sing. They don't really, they're maybe not hostile to Jesus, but they're not actual believers either. They're just engaging in the ceremonies out of some sort of cultural idea. 
And then it's entirely possible, and it does seem to be, especially in Luke's gospel, I can't remember why, it seems to be that some of them are there going to be there on Friday to yell crucify. So, that, you know, to think I, about doesn't, who this crowd is. Doesn't Fritz make a big deal that they're not the same people? I think that might have been me. I think I used to make, maybe maybe I got it from him. Uh, I used to make a big deal of that. I didn't like the idea, but I've, I've been changing my mind about it over the years. That Maybe they are, or some of them at least maybe are. I don't want them to be because I love this so much. It's so beautiful and it's so appropriate. But, you know, Caiaphas says a beautiful thing. It is expedient that one man should die, right? I mean, um, you know, let his blood be upon us and our children. That's a beautiful thing. Hmm. I mean, it is, these characters do say this sort of, these sorts of things that are beautiful and true, which they do not believe or understand when they're saying them. Hmm. And so there is a, I mean, that would be consistent. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want it to be that. I want these to be believers. I want them to be true worshipers of God and believers in the Messiah. But I, I don't know. I, I think that reasonably the 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 most reasonable expo, uh, explanation would be would be that it's a mixed crowd and that there's all sorts of people there for all sorts of reasons there might be some that are openly hostile some that are the quiet in the land who really do believe and recognize like the blind men did that this is the son of david the merciful one and then some that are just you know caught up in the moment and don't really care. You know, it's fun to sing joy to the world. Who cares what the words mean? It's fun to give gifts on Christmas. Who cares what the tradition comes from? Um, so yeah, there you go. What there's about a, there's a lot to think about this and correction. I got a, quite a few for correction. Um, mm-hmm. Well, uh, first of all, I kind of this idea that the kingdom of, I think we kind of prefer the kingdom of pl- power and of glory to the kingdom of grace. I think that's a problem, actually, uh, that we should uh, that we don't actually appreciate the reality of what's being given to us now, and that this is our King in the sacrament, in the preaching, right, in the absolution, in our brothers who's coming to us. So we're not as reverent or as aware, and we have a a very wicked tendency to take these things for granted. So there's a, an opportunity to rebuke or correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already talked about the requires a response. Oh, and then I did have, which I guess we kind of got into this sort of. I think that's. I think it's right at this time of year, if if not on this Sunday, then maybe sometime at Christmas or around it, to warn of cultural Christianity, right? Mm. Um, that it, it is entirely possible to observe Christmas without any faith at all, right? And, you know, just to have this kind of vague, sentimental feeling of happiness that comes from being indoors and warm and a full belly when it's cold outside and not recognizing the creator or the redeemer and um, not being sort of deluded by, you know, just because you go to Walmart and they say Merry Christmas doesn't mean we're living in a Christian cult- a country, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not a nice. It's not. A, that's not going to be a fun thing to preach. But I, I think at some point we we need to recognize how out of sync we are again with the world, and some of that's going to be a rebuke. Some of that's going to be, I think, also though consoling, in the sense that 
some people at least are going to go, oh, that's why I feel so weird this time of year, because I'm being torn in multiple directions and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. You know, I couldn't figure out why I don't like Santa Claus. You know, I mean, I I knew something was off with Santa Claus, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I felt like I was just being a curmudgeon, you know, Um, right? Because I I mean, Santa Claus is the ultimate works righteousness guy. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why it's sort of shocking to me that Lutherans like him, right? Because he he has a list and he keeps track of who's naughty and nice. And if you're naughty, you get coal, no gifts. But then it's even worse because he's because he's works righteous, but he gives everybody gifts so that nobody even knows that he was actually naughty. But anyway, <laughs> I always get in trouble this time of year because of my I anti-Santa Claus bias. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't even start thinking about Santa Claus without getting mad. I really don't like Santa Claus. I know you. You're are you a big Santa Claus guy? We're not big Santa Claus people, but we're not we're not you. You're not as as annoyed as yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're Some just people like, have tried you know, to. I mean, it, it's just kind of like. I know. It's true. Uh, it's like Halloween. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, I mean. I don't like that I, either. <laughs> you don't at all? No. I've gotten, I get, I'm getting, I know, I'm just all by a bat. Well, you, of course, like, it's, del- I you, love seeing the children dressed up. Yeah. Do you yell at people to get off your lawn? Um <laughs> I'm having signs made this weekend. Yeah. Okay. Um, when the, when you sneeze, yeah. does dust come out? <laughs> Are you that curmudgeonly? <laughs> I mean, it is. T- I I think in some ways I'm being pulled back from it actually a little bit. So maybe I've maybe I've had my nadir and I'm coming back down to more reasonableness. The grandchildren help. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's hard. You know, as annoyed as I am with how people act about Halloween. You know, to see the grandchildren dressed up in their costumes and having so much fun, that's hard to resist. And there is an innocence in them that is not the stuff I'm mad about. And I, I can see that with Santa Claus, too. Um, you know, that it just really, I, it just concerns me that, you know, Santa Claus has, it's like a deity. I mean, he has these divine attributes in his benevolence and his omnipotence and his omniscience. I mean, all mm-hmm. of that is, and then, and then the problem is, is that the children are going to find out, right? And then they're going to be, oh, you made up that God, you know, and that was just a story. It worries me that I'm afraid that's what they'll, they'll think that happened when we, they'll think, well, was Jesus in that same category? He's just as make-believe as Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. So that, you know, if it can be done, which it can be, I mean, if you can do it as just, you know, a fun story, you know, no more real than, you know, Pinocchio. And, you know, I think that's fine. And I'm, I'm you know, but it does worry me. <laughs> so in terms of training on righteousness and correction, what do you think about focusing on really the gospel reading and the the Romans reading to talk about Christ's coming requires preparation. So you can kind of set that up that everyone has preparation to make here, as you can see in Matthew 21. And then St. Paul's admonition, right, to know the time and to use the time appropriately and uh, in order to put on Christ. Is that a training in righteousness and correction for the day? 
and for for our time. Yeah, I mean, I think that that we have a real weakness on this that we don't do much to prepare ourselves to receive Holy Communion typically, mm-hmm. right? We don't do much yeah. to prepare for. You know, I mean, if, if uh, unless you're in the choir or something, I mean, what do you really do to prepare to come to the Christmas Eve service? You know, you get dressed. I mean, that's about it, right? There's lots of mm. preparation for the family celebrations, but yeah. you know, it's it is kind of telling. I think that well, and and this would be you know the first Sunday of Advent would be a good time to say, well, you've got some time. Why don't you think about? deliberately, consciously preparing yourself to receive the sacrament. And, you know, here's the way the church has traditionally done this, fasting, almsgiving. Um, what's the other one? Prayer. Increased service. In prayer. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, even, you know, and I, and I think even if they don't change what they're doing, if they would learn to think about what they're doing differently. So they might come to midweek services you know, during Advent, they've always done that since we started offering them. But maybe, you know, be explicit that we're coming to midweek services, that's adding prayer, right? And adding the sacrament, if you have the sacrament, and adding Bible reading as a way to prepare us. And that's great. You know, you're going to you're gonna come to church three extra times in the next three and a half weeks to get ready to receive Jesus in his body on Christmas Eve and again on Christmas Day. And, oh yeah, that's another one you could throw in. Maybe you should also come on Christmas Day. Day. <laughs> <laughs> you have more than one family celebration, right? You don't just give you don't just give the children just one gift and one piece of candy, right? You have multiple family celebrations. Maybe Christmas at church is worthy of more than just one worship service. There's a good correction. Um, but you could also, you know, just maybe talk about. Uh, you know, the service itself, too, has even built into the service preparation, right? The preparatory mm-hmm. rite. So maybe this is a time to do a little catechesis. Sometimes we're just kind of blowing through this without thinking about what it is. Why do we do this? Because we actually do need to be prepared. And so the liturgy is helping us, is preparing us. And so maybe they're not going to do exactly anything different, but maybe they'll understand what they're already doing in a way that's more edifying and useful. Yeah. So what are you going to focus on, you think? I know it's a little ways away. Yeah, well, I, I this draw near thing, I think there's something to that. Um, it's I always read this Gerhardt sermon, and then it's like, I should, maybe I need to stop doing that because I, I just want to preach that sermon. Uh, he really goes after the kingdom stuff in a very thorough way, and I mean that you could in our we could divide that sermon into at least three sermons, um, but it's just so beautifully done that that's the way Is I see like in almost always in Yeah, that's the one in the pastilla from uh, you know translated by this Hola Hella guy put out by uh, James Heiser with Repristination Press, the Center for Study of Lutheran Orthodoxy in Malone, Texas, published in 2003, is the version I have. And it's really, it's really nice. You know, he's got, yeah, it's, it's all the way through. It's all the festivals or the, I mean, the festival half of the year. So. Well, they have it for Trinity season Yeah, what are you thinking? Right. No, that's the one that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The. Yeah, so it has in bold, right? 
his kind of theses. First, how the distinctive features of Christ's kingdom are portrayed for us in this account, and next, how the duties which we as subjects of this kingdom of Christ the Lord are obligated to render are portrayed for us in this story. That is this the one you're talking about? Yeah, except then, but then it's sort of bolded poorly, actually, because then he says, well, we're only going to do the first part. So the thesis is really just the first, the distinctive features of Christ's kingdom. Mm, um, okay. And, but then they, then they bold, I think, do they always bold when he quotes a Bible passage? That's I nice. So. I like that. Um, well, you've also got, then they bold, um, they, no, they, they, they bold at the very end, the, the three kingdom, the uh, comings into the flesh, spiritual coming and judgment. So it's a little on the formatting. This could be a little better, mm-hmm. but, but I mean, the, but it's, a, I, I mean, as far as I know, and I, 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 I'm pretty confident that this is a good translation. Um, so, and I don't know, maybe they're, maybe this is the way it was bolded in German. Maybe they're just following that. Oh, it could be, could be. I don't, I, I don't know. It's, it's a fantastic book and I'm very thankful to have it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know me, I have to always, I'm terrible at always wanting to see what's wrong with something. Uh, I don't mean it that way, but it's how it comes off. <laughs> My poor wife. Well, you're just always focusing on how it could be better. I, that is, that's what I think I'm doing, but uh, it doesn't always, it's a, uh, it's not always a great trait, and it sometimes is. Uh, it hurts people. So yeah, I, I try try to uh, at least recognize that. I didn't mean to be. I don't. In no way meant to be ripping on this book because it's not bolded perfectly. I love this book, <laughs> and I thank God for it. And Jim Heiser too. So yeah, and all of Aldona. <laughs> nope, just him. <laughs> just him. Good. <laughs> He published this back when he believed in objective justification. So, <laughs> uh, uh, any any final thoughts? <laughs> no, it's it's a great it's a great text and a great Sunday. I always I always enjoy it. Oh, I was going to say uh, one other thing, just sort of related to this whole Advent thing. I it's this is one of the the places where the historic lectionary is just so far superior to the three-year lectionary. And it's one of those Sundays, I didn't have to look up what the readings were. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so conscious of it. And the people are too, right? They, they anticipate this. They, look for, they know what it's going to be, and it makes sense to them. And it's a, it's a, far, richer, it's a far richer tradition and uh, much more catechetically deep so it's one of those Sundays where, I mean, I don't think every part of the historic lectionary is like that completely, but in general, it is. And overall, it, it, it absolutely is. So this is one mm-hmm. where I think it's quite pointed. Like, like the Jesimas are like that, and the Sundays in Lent, and you know, in a few other places where it's like, it's almost like, even if, even if uh, this was the only. These were the only places where the historic lectionary was superior. It judged in terms of the actual imparting of doctrine and for teaching in a way that mm-hmm. people will remember and putting the most important things deeply into their memory. Even if it was only these places, it like this would be worth it. Um, so, yeah. so there. Well, I think a, I know. I think even the Epiphany the is. 
is oh, yeah. better. Epiphany too. Uh, I mean, because all of the miracles, you don't. I, I don't think in the yep. in the three year lectionary you get a focus on the miracles the way you do in the the one year lectionary. Right, because I think they they think epiphanies uh, about evangelism. I mean, not that right. That's the kind of emphasis. So, right, it's a different. different well, and kind of it's thing. been in that way been affected by higher criticism. Yeah. Oh, they so. don't they don't believe in the miracles. Are they right. ashamed of the miracles? You mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of that in me. That's a <laughs> carryover from my. I've a I I've, I catch myself from time to time. I was taught by higher critics in college, and you know, it's uh, I it's it's a it's a real thing to be ashamed of the miracles, to be embarrassed mm-hmm. by them. Yeah. So I get that. And I, I mean, I, I get it and I, re- I try to repent of it, but uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, that's in that regard. Uh, that's, I realized I, I was always embarrassed by Samson. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, I just learned to embrace Samson this summer. And I'm so glad that I did. And I just didn't even, I wasn't like consciously avoiding him, but you know, it was just that same kind of thing, you know? And I think that's, we've talked about this. I think that's why like for funerals, I, I don't tip, I don't like to pick these miracles cause I'm embarrassed by them. Mm. Yeah. Well, I challenge you to just start preaching on them so that you learn not to be. Yeah, no, that's what, that's what I have to, that's exactly right. That's, a, that's exactly what I need to do because it's wrong. We should not be embarrassed about anything that's in the Bible, right? right. Including yeah. condemnation of homosexuality and a host of other things, but, you know, mm-hmm. or the, head, the headship of men and the subordination of wives. I mean, all this kind of stuff that we're just, right? If we're embarrassed about it, then we know the problem's in us. Right. So. Yep. All right. Oh, good, good. Thanks. Thank you for your time and, and your insight. We'll, we'll pick up Advent 2 next week. All right. Thanks, Jason.